0: Welcome to
1: Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan
0: and Cassidy Zachary.
1: We have made it, dress Woohoo! listeners. <laughs> we have swam, tumbled, sprinted, dived, skateboarded, and even surfed all the way into the finale of our four-part series on dressing the summer athlete. And we still have around 50 years or so of Olympic history to cover before we make it to the present day. So unfortunately, we don't have a ton of, of time to linger at the
0: 1972 Munich Olympics. Right, but if you are going to look up only one example of Joss from that year, please make it the uniforms worn by East Germany during the opening ceremony parade. Or as the U.S. Olympic book from that year tells us, quote, of all the participating countries, it would have to be the East Germans who appeared not in uniform, as one would have expected, but in elegantly tailored trouser suits in five different colors, turquoise, orange, lilac, yellow, and lime green. That was taken as a cheeky gesture. I mean, how fabulous <laughs> does this sound? <laughs> and, and not at all their national colors. Oh, just no. Saying. No. <laughs> And the uniforms really set this new precedent for opening ceremony attire that we will see more and more of as we move into the future when the opening ceremony really becomes a forum for this increasingly creative display of national pride in all of its rainbow glory. Yes.
1: And also, perhaps not to be missed, are the uniforms of the 1972 U.S. women's team who are wearing possibly their chicest and shortest uniforms to date the women's pleated mini skirt which extended to the mid thigh was paired with a fitted red blazer over which in of course classic 70s fashion extends this really long lapelled shirt and then <laughs> a navy handbag rounds out the requisite USA red white and blue color theme
0: Yes, they had not quite found their creative chops yet, but we're getting there. (laughs) (laughs) And on to the 1976 Summer Olympics, or the Games of the 21st Summer Olympiad, held in Montreal, Canada. So many highlights, Averill, so little time. 6,084 athletes from 92 countries came to compete in 198 events. Women's basketball, rowing, and team handball were introduced for the first time. The 14-year-old gymnast Nadia Comaneci of Romania became the first ever gymnast to score a perfect 10 after her uneven bars performance. And in a fashion history-making moment, for the first time ever in the history of the Summer Olympic opening ceremony, the U.S. women athletes are wearing dun dun Pants, And this is the part where our regular listeners say, here we go
1: again. (laughs) Um, Because women athletes had, of course, already been wearing bifurcated garments as part of their competition uniforms. Um, They had actually even been wearing pants or bifurcated garments at the opening ceremonies of the Winter Games since the 1950s, as protection from the cold, of course. But in the history of the Summer Olympics, the parade uniform was always in line with the fashionable silhouette and also the societal dress codes of any given period. And up until this point, these kind of more, quote-unquote, formal occasions, something like an
0: opening ceremony, would have called for skirts and not pants. But during the fashion revolution of the 1960s, women fought really hard to break down gender barriers, and this included the social codes that barred them from wearing pants outside of leisure or sports settings. It was a hard-won battle, and the 1976 Olympics really reflected this seismic shift in the broader social mores that had begun to accept women in pants for most occasions.
1: Despite the change from skirts to pants, these uniforms were imbued with all the national flair typical of their predecessors. You know, we have navy blue pants paired with white zipped up jacket under which a red top kind of peeps out occasionally. And the outfit is accessorized with a red, white, and blue scarf tied at the neck and a giant red satchel bag. The men wore navy blue suits with a red tie and a white shirt. So... These uniforms are significant for a fact that goes far beyond the fact that the women are wearing pants, because these are not our typical uniforms of Olympics past, pieced together by, quote, leaders of the American apparel industry. No, no, no. These are our first designer uniforms in the history of the Olympic team, and they were designed by none other than the one and only Halston.
0: That's right. Only the most influential and famous American fashion designer of the 1970s, April, whose name had really become synonymous with sleek, body-hugging jersey dresses that danced with the era's disco music. He would not, however, have exactly been my first guest for these progressive but conservative uniforms for the Olympic team. Perhaps not, but therein also lies Halston's genius,
1: and he really was a visionary far ahead of his time. You know, after selling the majority of his business to Norton Simon in 1973, Halston built a truly global fashion enterprise with offerings for his customers across the economic spectrum. And this really led to his teaming up with Montgomery Ward, a department store and mail order catalog at the time, And Montgomery Ward manufactured and donated the Halston design uniforms to the U.S. Olympic team. And Halston kind of brought the cachet of his names to the team's attire. And in exchange, the USOC allowed Montgomery Ward to sell these designs by Halston. They were in the same fabric, but they did not include the Olympic insignia. So we should note here that this relationship with Montgomery Ward was specifically for these Holston's Olympic designs and that he had this entirely separate venture later with another department store, JCPenney, but that wouldn't begin until the 1980s.
0: In 1975, June Weir for Women's Wear Daily reported in a two-page spread on the designer that, quote, Halston has achieved the impossible American dream. He is the U.S. designer who has most successfully combined business with fashion, money, and prestige. It's what every designer dreams about, your own store, your own custom salon, dressing some of the country's most fashionable women and superstars of film and stage, your own wholesale ready-to-wear operation, dressing Miss America. And then this is just crazy, April, so... He has separate firms making your own labeled luggage, perfume, furs, menswear, separates, rainwear, wigs, (laughs) millinery, plus your own patterns. Halston's are for McCall's. Your own bed linens, field crest, and then the article goes on. And then of course, becoming the official designer for the U.S. Olympic team. So he really had his hand in all the pots.
1: Yes. And I think it's important to clarify here that Halston was the very first solo official designer of the U.S. Olympic team. And while this sort of collaboration between a designer and a mass manufacturer is commonplace today, it was something that Halston really helped to pioneer. Because prior to this, high fashion designers had not yet understood the value of connecting their name to this massive international forum like the Olympics much less the concept of collaborating with a mass manufacturer and retailer like Montgomery Ward that catered to the middle class. But Halston, or perhaps we should say specifically Halston plus Norman Simon at this point, well, they saw an opportunity.
0: Yeah, and they took it, obviously. So Halston told Weir that while he enthusiastically accepted the offer to design the Olympic team uniforms— was a big undertaking, let's just say that. But he goes on to say that his job was designing every single thing a player wears, a parade uniform, dress uniform, a rain outfit, a leisure outfit, even his luggage. Just an idea of the scope of this project is the leisure outfit for members. It must be able to take them out to have a hamburger on the corner and still look right if they go to a black tie party at night. It's also a very difficult job because all of the figure problems involved. You have very short persons doing gymnastics, very heavy persons who are weightlifters, plus very tall athletes who play basketball. The Olympic team is also made up of persons of all ages, not just young ones. It's a major effort.
1: On October twenty seventh, 1975, Halston's U.S. Olympic collection made its debut in a fashion show held in Washington, D.C., and there is this fabulous image of the designer who is hosting this show and also... Past dressed guest Pat Cleveland, who is modeling in the show. And she's wearing what can only be described as a chiffon watercolored pajama set. And we're super excited to let you all know that Pat will be joining us again this season to talk about all things 1970s fashion, including her relationship with Halston. So stay tuned for that coming soon. Yes,
0: yeah, super excited to have Pat back on. So needless to say, Halston's contributions are groundbreaking. By bringing his star status and unique design aesthetic to the Olympic Games, he really set the stage for what was to follow, the dawn of a entirely new era of fashion industry Olympic relations, unlike anything we have previously seen or discussed up to this point in all of our previous episodes. So are you ready, dress listeners? Put on your blue jeans and cowboy hats because it's going to be a very interesting ride, (laughs) Moving (laughs) forward.
1: Following in Halston's footsteps, American denim giant Levi Strauss secured the exclusive title of official outfitters of the U.S. team with their donation of the uniforms for the 1979 Pan Am Games and the 1980 Summer and Winter Olympics. So, while Halston might have been the first to put the U.S. women in pants for the opening ceremony— Levi's was the first to put them in cowboy hats, shearling
0: jackets, and of course, you guessed it, blue jeans. Well, blue jean denim skirts, we should clarify. The men wore jeans. And this is, of course, at the 1980 Winter Olympics held at Lake Placid, New York. The items were part of the athlete's 30-piece $1,200, and that's $1,200 at the time, Olympic Levi's wardrobe that included everything from cowboy boots to sweaters to tweed blazers for travel. And the athletes were reportedly thrilled with one athlete proclaiming that receiving their new duds was, quote-unquote, better than Christmas, while another commented, we are going to be the best-dressed athletes in the village. And I can't argue with that.
1: Another athlete said, whether or not the United States win a lot of gold medals, the American athletes at the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid are going to stand out. Instead of the conservative red, white, and blue uniforms of past international sporting events, they've been described as polyester city, referring to the past (laughs) uniforms, of course. He goes on to say, this year's athletes are going to look like the great American hero, the cowboy or the girl of the Golden West, end quote. Or, as the official USOC book from that year touted, the athletes were wearing typically American clothing.
0: Doesn't this sound familiar? <laughs> so it's in this way that the 1980 Winter Olympics really marks this watershed in U.S. Olympic fashion history. So Levi's parade uniform successfully evoked national pride in a way that we really had not previously seen up to this point in United States opening ceremony costumes. Of course, we'd seen it in the East Germans doing something different at um, 1972. And Levi's did it not by using the tricolor combination of red, white, and blue, as we have seen on basically every single uniform since the modern game's inception in 1896, but rather the parade dress itself, one that was advertised as representing the very embodiment of American identity. Where parade uniforms had always been formal attire, as we previously mentioned, so dresses, for women or skirts and suits for men, Levi's essentially brought workwear to the international arena.
1: And bringing cowgirls and boys to the Olympics was not the only thing groundbreaking about this Levi's Olympics collaboration. Unlike the 1932 Olympics, when the USOC thanked companies for their generous donations by bestowing upon them the title of official Olympic customer, Levi's actually paid for the title. So more on that after we jump on our bike and BMX freestyle through a sponsor break. Welcome back. So back to that Levi's Olympics collaboration. Uh, Levi's really kind of took this to the next level. They turned the volume all the way up. And unlike Halston or Montgomery Ward, whose donation earned them the privileged title, Levi's actually paid for the designation as official designer to the Olympics. They paid $350,000 for the privilege of being the exclusive, quote, outfitter of the U.S. team. In addition to donating what amounted to $1 million in clothing to the team, they also paid $8 million
0: for ad space, rolling out a huge international marketing campaign. So what makes it international, you may be thinking? While the Winter Olympics were held in the U.S., the 1980 Summer Olympics were held in Moscow, Russia, and according to the New York Times in a 1979 article, Levi's intended to put jeans on, quote, 23,000 Russians who will take tickets, roll up the mats, and drive athletes and visitors around during the summer games in Moscow. And that's a quote. Apparently, April, there was a huge black market for American blue jeans in Russia at this time, but that story might just have to wait for a future FHM.
1: Yeah, and also consider the time and what was going on, right, them? I mean, putting 23,000 Russians in American blue jeans was definitely a little bit of a political statement as well, so... (laughs) Putting these Levi's products on volunteers and athletes was just one part of the plan, which included also playing a Levi's commercial every hour during the NBC telecast of the games, as well as making levi's olympic designs available to the public and this is a lot but perhaps not so much of a surprise when we also learned that this was all part of the company's marketing campaign to launch a brand new division for active wear and i think we are all very familiar with the 1980s craze for workout wear <laughs>
0: So while remaining true to their image with the quote-unquote all-American cowboy and cowgirls at the Winter Olympics, Levi's actually had every intention of expanding upon their signature denim image, expanding past it, I should say. In fact, they intended to become the leading activewear company in the world, and the Olympic Games really provided the perfect international forum to institute this really ambitious marketing strategy and achieve this goal. Unfortunately, as April alluded to with the politics (laughs) that was going on at the time, the American government had other ideas. They sure did. The United States led a 66-country
1: boycott of the summer Moscow Games because of the politics surrounding the Soviet-Afghan War. And needless to say, the U.S. did not participate in the 1980 Olympics because of this boycott. And Levi's ambitious marketing campaign was actually put off until the 1984 Olympics, which were held in Los Angeles. And this just happens to be another watershed moment or a point of no return for fashion industry Olympic relations uh, once we hit 1984, because this is the Olympics that will change everything moving forward. But before we get to that, perhaps Cass is going to tell
0: us a little bit about the LA Games you know I will. So with a reported 2 billion television viewers worldwide, 6,829 athletes from 140 teams converged on Los Angeles, California in the summer of 84. The legacy of the past Olympics and Olympic athletes we've discussed throughout this series was on full view at the opening ceremony, as recounted by our go-to source for this series, the USOC Olympic Book of 1984 quote, soon a figure emerged, clearly a woman, but not immediately recognizable. She was, however, quickly identified as Gina Hemphill, 26 years old, the granddaughter of Jesse Owens, the American star of the 1936 Olympics, the man who had upstaged Hitler by winning four gold medals in track and field in Berlin. Gina Hemphill had been one of the first two runners in the torch relay after the flame arrived in New York for Mount Olympia, sharing the first lap, with Jim Thorpe's grandson, Bill. So a couple names we recognize there. And then the flag bearer actually was Eileen Riggin, the now 78-year-old Olympic gold medalist diver who took home gold in 1920 at the age of 14. So lots of familiar names at this point. (laughs) And there were many achievements
1: and firsts to celebrate at these Olympics that included the debut of synchronized swimming, the women's marathon, and the first paraplegic athlete to take part in a medal event. Archer Naroli Fairhall of New Zealand competed in a wheelchair. But these groundbreaking athletic feats are not, in fact, the reason why these games are called the most successful in history. No, that actually had to do with the fact that these Olympics garnered a monumental $223 million in profit. And this was something that was unheard of in past Olympics because the past Olympics had really kind of been these historic money pits. <laughs> Countries were losing <laughs> money when they were hosting the Olympics, not making money. So how did the LA 84 Games do this? Well, the budget of the 1984 Olympics was made up entirely of private funds. It was the first fully commercialized Olympics in history.
0: Yeah, so the LA Organizing Committee really set a precedent for all future games by ushering in the modern era of corporate sponsorship at the Olympics, from which they have never returned. We are very much there today. And this was something that the International Olympic Committee had been trying to avoid since the game's inception in the 1890s. It was completely antithetical to their guiding, quote unquote, amateur principles of the game, which we have, of course, discussed the issues with that. But the IOC president, Avery Brundage, really discusses why they did not want commercialism at the Olympics and at this speech in 1955. He says, we can only rely on the support of those who believe in the principles of fair play and sportsmanship embodied in the amateur code and our efforts to prevent the games from being used by individuals, organizations, or nations for ulterior motives. <laughs> Long gone is that philosophy. <laughs> well, and also it can be argued that the, that had always been a part of the Olympic Games. But <laughs> while the amateur code came with its own host of problems, as we've discussed, the threat of capitalist greed ruining the Olympics was a valid concern.
1: I still think it's a valid concern oh, to for sure. everything <laughs> and not just the Olympics. <laughs> The 1984 L.A. Olympics would effectively end the Olympic policy on commercial sponsorship, followed also by the end of the rules which governed amateur athletes competing. These were kind of gone by the 1990s. And after that, there was really no stopping the floodgates of sponsors looking to capitalize on the opportunity for this massive worldwide exposure. As the Spokesman Review reported in 1984, quote, what do a rose, a candy bar, Muzak, a waste management firm, and 300 Japanese-made basketballs all have in common? A special link with the Summer Olympics all have official status as product sponsors, suppliers, or licensees of the Los Angeles Games. Only those with membership in the exclusive sponsorship program are authorized to carry the five-ringed Olympic symbol on their products.
0: And I will say that the IOC did sue Mervyn's department store for selling unauthorized Olympic merchandise. Ooh, they sued a lot of people. <laughs> so there were 55 suppliers in total from which the LA Olympic Committee obtained, quote, between 4 to $13 million in cash goods or services around 170 million total. Sponsorship revenue added to the 225 million broadcasting contract with ABC and that made up almost 80% of the income for the LAOOC budget. And of these 55 suppliers, Levi's was front and center implementing their comprehensive marketing campaign which included outfitting now 60,000 Olympic game volunteers And 700 members of the US Olympic team. And as Women's Wear Daily reported overall, Levi's provided more than 13,000 blazers, 145,000 shirts, and 25,000 jeans. It was an Olympic undertaking and one that I will say was actually produced in the United States.
1: (laughs) Ah, yay. Also, one accompanied by an unprecedented. $17.5 million Olympic marketing campaign that included a series of nationally advertised sweepstakes. And are we dating ourselves here? Who (laughs) remembers sweepstakes out there? They're not so much a thing anymore, but I feel like they were when I was growing up. For sure. (laughs) And one of these sweepstakes was entitled Olympic Levi's Style, and the company called upon the public to actually vote on kind of the aesthetic look of the U.S. Olympic team parade uniform, and the public was given the choices of, should it be active wear, should it be classic, or should it be Western wear? Well,
0: what do you think they picked? Well, (laughs) and we will post pictures because you have to see this. In the first time in the history of the Olympics, Activewear made its summer Olympic opening ceremony debut. The parade uniform, as we said, once based on dressy day wear, had been completely transformed into a synthetic red, white, and blue tracksuit with matching visor. And this actually is the first ever truly gender neutral summer opening ceremony look because the men and women were dressed exactly the same. The Levi's Olympics partnership represents a break from the past in almost every way. And it really sets this new standard that would effectively redefine the role of the fashion industry at the Games forevermore.
1: Yes, definitely the floodgates are now wide open. And at the 1988 Winter and Summer Olympics in Calgary, Canada and Seoul, South Korea, respectively, Adidas was the official outfitter of the U.S. Olympic teams, and this distinction was a long time coming considering the fact that Adidas had been courting athletes illegally for decades prior. So, if you're a little bit confused by that, let us explain, because prior to the 1990s, the International Olympic Committee's anti-commercial regulations meant that athletes could not have sponsors. However... Sports Illustrated uh, published an expose uh, from the 1960s that revealed that competition between the Dassler brothers' rivals, so uh, Adolf Dassler owned Adidas and Rudolf Dassler owned Puma, well, they were competing to see who could get the athletes to wear their products. And things had really gotten out of hand considering the fact that they were actually offering athletes up to $10,000 under the table to simply wear their shoes. All right, by 1988, however, the companies that were being run originally by Adolf and Rudolf, they were now being run by their sons, Horst and Armin. But this rivalry between their fathers was still fully intact
0: between the two cousins. It sure was. So Armin over at Puma professed to, quote unquote, stay out of sports politics. But apparently there was no limits for Horst or Adidas. And that's exemplified in this Wall Street Journal article in 1986 that called Horst, quote, one of the most important power brokers in the Olympics movement, end quote. Horst was deeply involved in the politics of amateur sport. And he was even accused by his critics of influencing the votes of the Olympic Committee. And as an example of this, Or as an example of Adidas' influence, I should say, in the sports world, one 1988 article estimated that 89% of countries attending the Olympics that year were wearing Adidas products. So that ranked them alongside Coca-Cola, Marlboro, and Kodak as really the most influential global brands. And in terms of commercializing the Olympics, there was no going back, it seems. And that is confirmed by a 1996 Women's Wear Daily article that says... Quote, this year, deep pocket sponsors will compete more fiercely than ever for the ultimate gold medal, the consumer dollar, with projected retail sales of Olympic-licensed products at over a billion dollars. This was a big business.
1: Yeah, and clearly it's not a coincidence that (laughs) this is also the era that fashion magazines finally began paying attention to the Olympics. By the 1990s, the glossies had clearly caught this profitable Olympic spirit. In 1992, Harper's Bazaar published an editorial called The First Fashion Olympics, which was a nine-page spread dedicated to Calvin Klein, whose minimalist designs they touted as exemplifying American sportswear chic. And in 1996, Vogue did a multi-page feature on America's Olympian women, which featured actual Olympic athletes. In 2001, Olympic gold medalist Marion Jones became the first Olympic athlete on the cover of Vogue, um, and she was shot by Annie Leibovitz.
0: Yeah, and I have to say, I do have a favorite of these spreads, because let me tell you, there are Tons moving on from the 1990s. And hands down, my favorite has to be Harper's Bazaar, June 2008, that had Lucy Liu as the cover girl. She's in a Chanel gown. She's draped in an American flag. This photograph's accompanied by the title, Winning Look, Show Your Colors in the Season's Triumphant Fashions. And then she appears in this 11-page spread in the magazine shot by Peter Lindbergh called the Fashion Olympics. And it's just fabulous. She's in all this best season's best Winning coacher quote on the ease of the games in Beijing Lucy Liu demonstrates that it's not whether you win or lose it's how you're dressed that counts <laughs> and it, we'll post pictures because it's really incredible. She starts off with a javelin and Armani Privé. Then she appears on the beam. Then she's discus-throwing a Chanel bag, wearing Dolce & Gabbana. <laughs> she's weightlifting Gucci bags in a Jean-Paul Godier gold-spangled bodysuit. And then finally, at the end, she accepts her prize, her medal, a lawn van necklace, and a Lacroix haute couture gown. So... <laughs>
1: It's like she's competing against herself and herself only in her own private fashion Olympics. Yes, it's pretty fabulous. So the fashion press nicknamed the 2012 London Olympics the Fashion Games or perhaps the Glamour Games because so much high fashion was on the field and also seen in the opening ceremony. The Italian team wore Giorgio Armani and Prada. The U.S. team wore Ralph Lauren, the official outfitter of the team since 2008. And Hermes designed for the French. In 2016, Christian Louboutin partnered with former athlete turned retailer Henri Tai on his designs for the Cuban Olympic team. And in addition, Olympic athletes themselves had actually at this point become fashion icons and models. So for his spring-summer 2019 collection entitled Track and Field, off-white designer Virgil Abloh actually sent Olympic athletes down the runway.
0: Since the 1984 Olympics, athletes have signed lucrative multi-million dollar contracts with sportswear brands, while others have become, as April mentioned, style stars in their own right, even heading up their own clothing lines, something that's highlighted in a 2016 Women's Wear Daily article entitled Let the Games Begin, and this was released on the eve of the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Women's Wear Daily called the upcoming games, quote, a virtual arms race when it comes to activewear companies and the technologies they develop for the event, end quote. And many times this was done in collaboration with the very athletes these companies sponsored, a relationship that Women's Wear Daily, perhaps a little harshly, called one of mutual exploitation. <laughs> We could also just go win-win. Yeah. (laughs) Win-win. That's a little harsh. (laughs) And this article featured a number of top Olympic athletes, including five-time Olympian swimmer Missy Franklin, who's photographed in a swimsuit by none other than her sponsor, Speedo, with whom she was about to launch her very own line of swimsuits.
1: Yeah, win-win. And Speedo is still inarguably the number one choice for Olympic swimmers. That the most decorated athlete in Olympic history, Michael Phelps, wore Speedo in his epic 22 Olympic gold medal wins (laughs) across the 2004, 2008, and 2012 games. He has 28 medals in total. Well, this kind of speaks to the incredible success of the brand, which has really been at the forefront of swimwear innovation since day one of the modern Olympic Games. Because we've talked about Speedo's contributions to swimwear spanning all the way back to the 1920s when they produced their groundbreaking non-wool racerback swimsuit which took claire dennis to olympic gold in 1932 and i just want to point out and point back to that episode that she was almost
0: disqualified from this because her suit showed too much shoulder blade (laughs) and that is not the last speedo controversy we will have (laughs) no (laughs) so moving into the 1950s Speedo began using nylon in their swimsuits, producing nylon elastane swimsuits by the 1970s, and these would really change the game by making swimwear way more water-resistant. Their other fabric innovations include introducing the world's first chlorine-resistant fabric called Endurance, and that was in 1994, and then their Power Plus fabric, which is apparently 50% lighter than traditional swim fabric. So they just keep innovating and innovating. And then they have this Block the Burn fabric, which is basically a sunscreen protecting wearers from 98% of the sun's harmful rays, So I think I definitely need to get my hands on that. (laughs)
1: Yes. Then there's also the fast skin family of elite Speedo swimsuits, which the company touts as having been, quote, recognized by the Smithsonian Institute for Advanced Technology. And other innovations uh, that Speedo cites include, quote, the experts in the Speedo Aqua Lab working with NASA, to develop the Speedo Laser Racer, which debuted in 2008. The Speedo Laser Racer was named one of the best inventions of the year in 2008 by Time Magazine, one of the most innovative products of the year in 2008 by Popular Science Magazine. And this swimsuit also took home an Edison Award in 2008 for its design and innovation. And this swimsuit might kind of pop up in your memory a little bit because. It was also banned by the International Olympic Committee and also the International Swimming Federation because apparently this full-body suit allowed swimmers to swim too fast, <laughs> which maybe it's just me, but I thought that was the entire point <laughs> of the competition because after debuting at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, athletes broke 130 world records in just 17 months. The controversy surrounding the suit might have been something to the tune of that it gave the people wearing it versus not wearing it an unfair competitive
0: edge. So Speedo is far from the only company partnering with the Olympics. And we should also say Paralympic athletes to create innovative sportswear. And we are going to hear more about these collaborations. But first, April, did you know <laughs> that since 1980, there have been more than 800 sporting events added to the Olympic Games That includes this year's edition of rock or sport climbing, surfing, three-by-three basketball, skateboarding, and karate. And I just want to say, dress listeners, April has been incredibly gracious in letting me geek out (laughs) repeatedly on these episodes because all of the puns, everything is my doing because I'm just a huge Olympic fan. So thank you, April, for (laughs) and dress listeners. She's literally watching the Olympics like
1: when she's not hasn't been working on these episodes. Yeah, say.
0: it's been on in <laughs> the background, actually, which has been awesome. So anyways, you can blame me for all the puns, but we are going to punch, kick and knee strike safely, of course, through to this next sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics, American world champion fencer Ibtihaj Muhammad broke barriers and made history when she became not only the first woman to compete in the hijab at an Olympics, but the first Muslim American woman in history to win an Olympic medal. She took home bronze.
1: Representation Matters and her influence has really been profound and far-reaching. She is a role model for many Muslim women and girls. Athletes are not all around the world. And Time Magazine uh, named Ibtahaj one of its 100 Most Influential People in 2016. In 2017, Mattel released its first hijab-wearing Barbie, modeled on her likeness. And Muhammad tweeted after the release of the Barbie, saying, I am proud to know that little girls everywhere can now play with a Barbie who chooses to wear hijab. This is a childhood dream come true. And she also has her own modest line of clothing cast. Um, it's called Luella by Ibtihaj, which she created in 2014.
0: So Iftahash's influence has also extended to activewear. And in 2017, she became the face of Nike's first ever hijab sportswear, pro hijab. Nike actually had apparently been working on this prototype for some time, for years prior. They'd done multiple rounds of testing and they'd received feedbacks from multiple Muslim athletes like weightlifter Amna al-Haddad and figure skater Zara Lari before bringing this product to consumers. And Lari said of the pro hijab, quote, it's a reminder to us Muslim women That we can achieve anything in the world, what Nike has done for Muslim athletes is a dream that we never thought would happen. End quote. And Nike's Pro Hijab is this excellent example of the ways in which athletes have continued to propel sportswear forward, not only in terms of technical innovation, but by also addressing social issues surrounding sports participation as well.
1: Nike's collaboration with American Paralympic track and field athlete Scout Bassett is another example of how the company really stepped up to meet athletes with the new tools they needed to excel. As a baby, Scout actually lost her right leg due to a chemical fire in China before being adopted at the age of seven and moving to the U.S. And she told Women's Health magazine last year, quote, I spent a lot of my childhood struggling with my identity. Being a girl with such a visible disability, being a minority, being adopted, being an immigrant, I'm all of these things that everybody else around me is not. And she goes on to say, the more I ran, the more confident I became in myself and my body. But when it came time to find the right clothes to wear on practice runs or the most comfortable shoes for race days, it was really tough. There just wasn't anything out there that made me feel empowered.
0: So Scout took matters into her own hands. She adapted clothing to meet her needs. But in 2015, she signed with Nike, who supplied her with her first pair of custom running spikes. For Scout, this was a game changer, taking more than two seconds off her 100-meter time, which a 100-meter run is not long, so it's mere seconds. So to take two seconds off of that is a huge deal. And she talks about what a difference active wear can really make to athletes. She went on to compete in the 2016 Paralympic Games in Rio. She took fifth in the 100-meter. And this year in Tokyo, she will go for gold in the long jump and the 100-meter race she says quote i want to help change the narrative and show that women with disabilities who compete in sports can be incredible we are powerful we are strong and we are no less attractive than anyone else and this leg is not the thing that makes me weak my scars my burns my prosthetic tell a story of all the hardships the struggles and the trauma that i have survived i've overcome it all this is my power that's what makes me strong and i want whatever i put on my body to reflect that too Scout is just
1: one of the thousands of Paralympic athletes who are helping to change the visibility and narrative surrounding disabled athletes. An expected 4,400 athletes are expected to compete in 540 events across 22 sports at this year's Summer Paralympics. And this push for this increased visibility over the last few years is what led the U.S. Olympic Committee's 2019 decision to formally change its name, the organization officially moving forward
0: as the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. This decision was a much-needed move to bring more attention and funding to the Paralympics that have long lived in the shadow of its Olympic counterpart, despite them really operating side-by-side side since the 1960s. Four-time Paralympian Oksana Masters reflected on the importance of the name change, saying, quote, This change is about more than an organizational name to me. This means that Paralympic athletes are fully included, embraced, and celebrated by the USOPC. I have personally felt the growing support for Paralympic athletes and the Paralympic movement by this organization. I am so proud to represent the US in competition and this allows me to take similar pride as a member of Team USA in quote. The partnership
1: is now on view throughout the advertising for this year's Olympics, highlighted in both TV ads and also the marketing campaigns of associated clothing brands. And Scout is one of many Paralympian athletes featured in Nike's ads for its uniforms for the Tokyo 2020—I I don't know. I'm like, is it Tokyo 2020? Is Tokyo 2021? Whatever. One of the two. Take your pick. Um, but Nike has really demonstrated their commitment to diversifying their athlete representation off the field and also in their stores and fashion campaigns. In 2019, the company introduced their first ParaSport mannequins into stores, while the eight-time Paralympic track and fielder Blake Leeper was just announced as the new face of Nike's underwear campaign.
0: And Leeper said in a press release recently, quote, I feel like my story and message of having hope and strength can help a lot of people. I just want to get on that stage and say I'm born without legs and I'm one of the fastest men in the world. So if you can see my life as an example, then anything is possible. So whatever you're going through today, if it feels tough, if it feels hard, congratulations, because you're on the right path.
1: Paralympians are also featured in ads by Speedo and Ralph Lauren, the official customer of the U.S. Olympic team, and also Skims, Kim Kardashian's underwear and
0: shapewear line, which is the official underwear of the U.S. Olympic team. Possibly young know, Olympic first. I've never heard of an official underwear of the U.S. team, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah, you know, as we've already discussed, representation matters, and and while well, there's Definitely still a long way to go on this point. The more that we see of athletes of different abilities and different body types, the more we can continue to fight and transform a lot of these harmful beauty standards and ideals that have long defined not only the world of sports, but also even more obviously of fashion.
0: And also, by just one degree of separation, April, we are going to be rooting for one of this year's competing Paralympic athletes. Dressed guest and friend conservator extraordinaire Sarah Scaturo's brother, Adam, will be competing in wheelchair rugby in his third Olympics. Adam has a bronze and gold medal from the 2012 London and 2016 Rio de Janeiro Games, respectively. So, Adam, we will be cheering for you when the Paralympic Games debut in Tokyo on August 24th. So stay tuned Dress listeners.
1: If you have not noticed, we have made it to our final destination to which this entire (laughs) series has been leading up to. This moment right here in time the Tokyo 2020 2021 Summer Olympics, 11,000 athletes from 205 countries are expected to compete in 339 events across 33 sports. And we have come such a long way since the naked male athletes of the ancient Greek Games, You know, somewhere along the way, we got rid of those wool bathing suits and other cumbersome competition wear. And also, Olympics along this path really adopted fashion, and the fashion world adopted the Olympic athlete. And the two are so intimately intertwined today, you would be very hard-pressed to find a fashion magazine or a mainstream newspaper that does not report on athletic style or or even feature entire fashion spreads starring. Olympic athletes. It's been almost 20 years since Marion Jones was the first Olympic athlete to be on Vogue's cover in 2001. And also, just most recently, Simone Biles appeared on the August 2020 cover,
0: again shot by Annie Leibovitz. And Vogue.com has an entire section dedicated to the Olympic Games and vice versa. Olympic.com has a series of articles called Fashion Police, which despite its misleading slash terrible title, (laughs) is really dedicated to looking at the clothing of Olympic athletes throughout history and today. It's more a celebration. They're not policing fashion, but whatever. I digress. So much to my sadness, dress listeners... I mean, we've done four episodes. <laughs> we really did not have time, however, to go into the self-fashioning of athletes in this series as much as I had hoped to. So, you know, check out these articles because they have some pretty fab ones on athletes like the five-time Olympic medalist Florence Flojo Griff Joyner, whose Olympic style is honestly deserving of its own episode. She had these fabulous long nails, which just have to be seen to be believed. And dress listeners, we appreciate your understanding that we simply could not cover or uncover it all. There are so, so many more Olympic fashion stories out there. And I really have had the best time doing this research on what I immediately discovered was a giant topic. April, I think it's pretty funny looking back that I came to you and I was like, oh, I'm going to do a Olympic fashion episode.
1: Yes. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Let's do it. And then it was like, you're like, oh, this is a huge topic. It's going to be a two-parter. And they're like,
0: okay, great. And then you're like, and a three-parter? And a (laughs) four-parter? And it could be its own podcast
1: series, but. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for all your hard work on this. This has been so fun. We are going to end today's episode with a quick look at the fashions on view at this year's opening ceremony. These Olympics are unprecedented and, of course, maybe a tad controversial for a number of reasons, most of them Surrounding the fact that it takes place during the pandemic. And it was certainly bizarre to see all of the thousands of athletes enter into a barely populated stadium, which was really meant to house 68,000 spectators. But despite everything, the athletes entered the stadium with pride and exuberance. It really was inspiring to watch the Parade of Nations, especially now um, that we all know about its 100 year history, in which dress has played a huge role in projecting and embodying the national identity and pride
0: of all the athletes and the nations they represent. And let's be honest, because each and every one of these 200-plus countries, which presented uniquely attired athletes, are deserving of their own four-part podcast series. Or, you know, entire podcast. (laughs) But, you know, be it Kenya's colorful Maasai print dresses or Telfar Clemens gender neutral designs for the Liberian team. Each country's unique cultural history and heritage was on view in this ceremony, literally stitched and embroidered on the athletes' ensembles. And I don't know about you dress listeners, but I definitely got teary-eyed during the opening ceremony when in the ceremony's final moments, Naomi Osaka lit the Olympic flame. She did so under a drone-lit globe that hovered as a beacon of the world above the stadium. And I was just reminded that despite everything we've all been through over the past year on and off the Olympic field, that the hopes and dreams of all of these nations are literally embodied and warm by these athletes, by these thousands of athletes. And the Olympics really remain a powerful and potent reminder of the beauty of human diversity and our shared humanity, something that is more important today than ever.
1: And with that, we conclude our four part series on dressing the Summer Olympic athlete. May you remember the winning aspects of your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us with an episode suggestion or a question, you can do so at dress at iHeartMedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. And then that is, of course, where we post images to company each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And a special thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week.
0: More Dress Tuesday.